It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm -hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and, and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator.
So, let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, I speak with Vicky Palau, who, at age 29, was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in August 2016. Vicky and her husband, who were only married six months before her diagnosis, were both fly-in and fly-out workers based out of Western Australia. And they both worked big hours, so this diagnosis came at such a shock. What was more of a shock for Vicky was the mental recovery post-treatment. Vicky talks about how you have to work out how to live mentally well with the fear of relapse, body changes, potential infertility, the loss of employment or finances. Vicky also speaks to her journey into motherhood, post-treatment, and how she was blessed with not one, but two miracle babies without IVF support. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. It is truly a raw and honest episode with a spark of magic. Well, hi, Vicky. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, and what we usually start off with is just asking you to um, maybe explain to the listeners who you are, um, where you live in the world, um, who is in your family, and what were you diagnosed with and when? Sure. Hi. Uh, my name is Vicky Pello. I currently live in Perth, but I'm originally from the UK. Uh, my family includes my husband, Mike, uh, my little girl, Maya, and um, uh, currently very pregnant with the <laughs> so any day now. So that will be yeah. of my family. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was diagnosed in 2016 with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time today, especially, as you said, being so very heavily pregnant and due to give birth any day now. So I appreciate <laughs> so I appreciate your time. Um, so what, what, you know, when you were diagnosed, what was happening for you around that time? What was taking place in your life and where were you at? Yeah, so it was a very uh, out-of-the-blue diagnosis, for want of a better word. I'd, we got married in March 2016 and was you know, everything was normal there was no I had no symptoms I had no no inkling whatsoever that anything was wrong and um by about July I'd noticed just a lump in my neck and I I was FIFO at the time fly in fly out for those people yeah. right? um and I was due to fly out a few days later and I thought oh god I'm gonna be away for a month I need to just get some antibiotics just to get whatever yeah. this is done um assuming it was just some kind of you know, glands up or something like that. Because I was 29, I was young, fit and healthy. I've never expected anything less. Um, so I went to the doctor and started, you know, waiting to find out. And they were oh, we'll just do this. We'll just do that. I was like, okay, okay, okay. Flew mm-hmm. back to work because the and everything was fine. Then got a call from the doctor saying, you need to come back for further tests, which was a bit confusing. Mm-hmm. And then said to my boss, I said, oh, I'll just fly down and do the test and I'll come back again. I'll take my computer, I'll be gone, you know, 24 hours and 48 hours and I'll come back. And, yeah, after a month of testing and all sorts of diagnostics and different bits and pieces, I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which in itself was a real shock because I had literally just found a lump in my neck and that was it. There was no... (laughs) unexplained weight loss there were no night sweats there were no other sort of pretty glaringly obvious symptoms which non-Hodgkin's lymphoma quite often has and it's stage four too as well yeah so I I um I remember thinking well what happened to stage one two and three why didn't I have any signs like what what 
Mm. How? <laughs> well, how? Mm. You know, how did we get to this point? Right. And um, yeah, it was a real shock. There's no history of it in my family. There is no um, sort of, as I say, there was no real warning signs. And I got to the stage where I, when I was diagnosed, my diagnosing hematologist, I'd sort of said to her, well, why? How? Why me? <laughs> and she said, you know what? There's no reason. It's just bad luck. And yeah. in some ways, a few friends of mine have said, would it, would a reason have been better? And I was like, I don't know because <laughs> I don't have a reason. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was a very unusual time at 29 to then be told you this could possibly be the th- you have stage four cancer and this could be it and who was with you at the time when you were diagnosed like I mean you'd said to your boss look I'm just going to go away for 24 hours (laughs) and it was a long 24 hours turned into a month like was anybody with you when you heard that news or yes I was very lucky I have my so my husband was also FIFO so we were both sort of and again every sort of diagnostic that we took and every scan and every biopsy we were both thinking it can't be cancer it can't obviously we've been told it could be at some stage, but it can't be cancer. I'm 29. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm 29. I'm young, fit and healthy. It can't be cancer. It can't be cancer. And so I went through all that with um, my husband. Some of the appointments, some of them I went to by myself. I'm fortunate enough that my dad also lives here. So he's from the UK as well. But um, my dad and my extended family are from, sorry, my stepmom's extended family are from Perth. So I had people come with me to appointments, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it was the the official diagnosis, I had my dad and my husband in the room because I said, I need you to help me ask questions. I need you to help me, you know, write things down that I can't remember. And my biggest question was around fertility because I'd done some research. I'd been mindful not to go too far down the Dr. Google rabbit hole because we all know that's never good. <laughs> never ever but you know when you're sitting there waiting and wondering it's natural it's natural what else do you do exactly and it's it's really hard to say to somebody don't google whereas at the same time you sort of want to be a bit prepared with some questions and some options and yeah so I had them with me which was great Mm -hmm. yeah and it you're right because people do you almost want to prepare yourself and soften that shock if you can of what if and as you said prepare yourself and what was the doctor's response like you you got delivered the news and then did you go straight into fertility options and talk or were you more what's treatment and what does that look like being stage four kind of a bit of both because I remember saying to her I said look I have heard that chemo can leave you infertile what does that mean for me because that is a big priority for me I'd never imagine not having kids and I remember her saying to me if you go away for six months and you come back, I can't treat you, that you will be terminal. Wow. Um, wow. However, if you have the treatment, the treatment is very positive. You know, there are really good results for my type of cancer and my type mm-hmm. of treatment, which was RTOP chemotherapy. However, yes, it will impact your fertility. There is a chance you could be left infertile. So that was what broke me, <laughs> not hearing that I had cancer. For some reason I had this sort of, gut feeling I was like right I can get through the cancer but I can't get through infertility I can't risk not being able to have children and that's 
And because for some of us women, it's we've dreamt about ha- being a mother from the time we were literally toddlers playing with babies, and it's some for some of us, it's such an innate feeling and um, desire to have. So I can totally understand why that would break you yeah, over that. Totally, like it was a the shock of having cancer, and b the shock of if I do survive, my life is completely different at twenty nine than I ever ever thought it would thought. be. So it was yeah. sort of a, it was almost like a double, double whammy, really. I had to decide, yeah. you know, do I take the risk of not having the treatment, but then I wouldn't survive anyway and I wouldn't be able to have children. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's yeah. not a great place to be put in, but then you mm-hmm. have always have options. You do have the options. And I chose um, many. And what were those options? For me? Yeah. Um, take the treatment or probably don't survive they weren't great options yeah. <laughs> um, yeah having said that you know I could have explored other avenues absolutely there are always different avenues to explore um I just chose to take the treatment and take my chances and focus on preserving my fertility in any way possible shape or form that I could um again when you're diagnosed you feel very out of control like massive and I'd always been a very organized control for it I was very good at my job which involved organizing FIFO you know all this kind of stuff yes very much like to be in control and cancer takes all control away from you completely and utterly and you feel like your body is out of control your choices are out of control everything so I made the choice to sort of let go of that control side of things and just focus on what could I choose and what could I do to support myself Um, and how did you do that I had uh, I had support, so I had um, Reiki therapy, and I had friends and family I could t- talk to. Um, I've got a, quite a strong mental health background and um, interest in psychology, so I worked a lot with my own um, processes through that. Um, yep. Informal counselling, all those sorts of things, just a lot of talking therapies because a lot of sort of getting out, <laughs> and obviously yes. a lot of a lot of my friends, God love them, I had no idea what to say because I had no idea what to say it was we were in our 20s we weren't meant to be getting cancer we were meant to be you know having having babies living our lives quite yes so it was a very strange time and the the best I still remember one of my best mates saying to me I went round we just sat at the dinner table and she said to me I I just don't know what to say and I said neither do I but that's great just keep talking to me like don't just because we don't know what to say don't just say nothing and sort of fade away into the background which some people do and some people did and that is more confronting for the cancer patient because yes they feel even more isolated where actually if people just step up and say this is really really I'm gonna swear really shit <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say um how can I help what can I say and then you kind of laugh about it together we'll get through it together by saying I don't know just say what you say and if it's wrong I'll tell you <laughs> but yeah. and I, I think I think that that's so important because in society, we're not very good at dealing with the hard things or dealing with other people's emotions that may be confronting or situations, say like death or grief, grief and loss, which cancer is very much all of that grief and loss. And yeah, to, to be able to have, to, you know, I've sat in front of so many people have said like, people just either back away or they don't say anything to me and that makes me feel worse or I just want to say this, but I don't want to upset them and then have to manage their feelings. You're right. Like if you just name it and say it, go, well, I don't know what to say. That's that's actually a beautiful opener 
to help start a conversation. Completely, because chances are the person with cancer doesn't know what to say either. They're making it, you know, muddling it through themselves. And um, it's that sort of crucial point where you find that talking, you're right, talking about grief and loss and and cancer and death and infertility is all very, very, very intense topics that a lot of people Mm. haven't had to deal with or haven't all just deal with one at a time, not all not all at once. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so yes, it yes. Is yeah. that fear of I want to help you but I don't know what to do. And it's easier if I do nothing because then there's no risk of me upsetting anyone. Yeah. But the cancer world is really lonely. Really especially, it is. especially in the AYA world, which is um adolescent and young adult world. It's yes. really isolating because you are a small minority and it's the time when you need your friends and family to really, really support you more than ever. Um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's so powerful. And I think that so many others can resonate, resonate with that. And, and even I think no matter what age you are, it is a really isolating time. You spend physically, you spend time in isolation away from the general public and away from your usual life and your usual support. So you you almost have to begin creating, as you said, you had to bring in that village of support for you to help get you through that period. And it's so, it's it always blows my mind. It's a little bit backwards that when the person who is struggling the most, they have to draw everyone in where it actually almost should be the other way. The village comes to the person, not the, the person goes to the village to gather them in. Yeah, and it's hard because people mean well. Like people, I've, I've, I've got sort of like a, it sounds awful, but I've got sort of like a, an email or a list of things <clears throat> that when people say to me, oh, my God, my friend's got cancer, how can I help them? I'll send it to them and say, right, this is a really good place to start. I'm not your, you know, the person going through it right now, yeah. so you know your friend better than anyone. Take or leave this with a giant bucket of salt, but essentially – People mean well and they want to help, but they say things like, mm. oh, let me know what I can do to help. And the person, that puts it back on the person with cancer and the person with cancer going, oh, God, I'm knackered. Do we just help? <laughs> like, do I have to think of something for you, a job for you on top of everything else? Yeah. I have to contact you to ask. Yeah, it is very much yeah. um, they mean well and they do want to help. And that's the thing. Like they're not, they're, they're not saying it to be dismissive. It's more a case of, I don't know what you need. Please let me know. But for somebody particularly like myself, and again, I'm speaking from personal experience, I don't want to generalise too much, but somebody who has been, you know, young, strong, independent female, you know, earned her own money, you know, lived her own life, to all of a sudden have to ask for a lot of help was, again, a very confronting change in circumstance. And being able to accept that help is one of the absolute greatest things to come out of my cancer experience, to be perfectly honest with you, but also mm-hmm. even knowing what to ask. It sounds daft, yeah. but you kind of, especially at the beginning when everybody wants to help, cancer, God love it, takes a while. And by the end, yeah. people have changed. People have moved on. Life changes. Yeah. But especially in the beginning when you haven't really started treatment yet and you don't really know what you need, you don't know what to ask for. So you say, oh, no, I'm fine. And then three months down the track when you're pretty heavily into treatment, it's you've got a bit more of an idea. So the dust has settled. Yeah, definitely. And then the dust has settled and some people are still there, which is great, and some people have moved on. Like Mm. as I say, the cancer experience itself can be very isolating because you are put on pause. Mm. 
is how I describe it to a lot of people. Like, so chemo brain does the same thing because it literally stops you from remembering anything. <laughs> um, but your life is on pause. Like, you can't really move forward because you don't know what's happening. You're not going backwards. You're just sort of, you're surviving. You're in survival mode. So, whereas the rest of the world is sort of moving on. Yeah, and you're right. We have you. You watch it. People describe it as watching the, another movie go on, and you're stuck in your own spot. And because you don't have any control of what's going to even happen the next day or the next hour or your next treatment, and it just is, yeah, it just controls so much of your life. Absolutely, you are every aspect. You're living to survive, and you don't know how many days you've got to live. <clears throat> and whilst you hope that the treatment is successful, that it is only x amount of chemos that they've told you but then you go in what and then it changes and that's out of your hands you have another scan and it hasn't reacted the way that you the doctors predicted it would so that changes that you you live very much day to day and enjoy trying to plan for the future but also know that any plans (laughs) i've described it to my friend the other day as a personal pandemic because it is literally like you can try and plan for the even a week ahead, but you don't know what's going to Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And you, how did you go with that change? I mean, I know you said you had a village of support mm-hmm. through that, but that lack of control of not being able to know what you could do, because I speak to many young people or even others, they go, oh, I just, I, I can't plan for the future and that. And being able to plan and have a goal and have purpose is so important to humans. And how did you go about managing not being able to do that or adapting to that way of life? So that was one of the hardest changes for me, especially with the constant thoughts in my head around fertility. You know, what am I going to be left with if I'm fortunate enough to survive? And that was the sort of the challenging part to try and find alternative ways that I could support myself and choices that I made. So I talk a lot about choices because um, I did find myself looking into alternatives. So I found alternative ways to support my health and my mental health through those times. Ironically, people, this is probably self-sabotaging, but I'd watch food programs on SBS. I can name you a lot of Vietnamese food programs. I couldn't <laughs> eat anything because I was so sick. But for some reason, it was just soothing to me to watch these Vietnamese <laughs> programs. I don't know. Yeah. I've never watched one since. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you did. I said, but yeah, you, do you, find, you find little things to support yourself and little things to support yourself if, in the day and in the moment. Like I, as I said, I did a lot of um, work with a Reiki therapist and she also is a, a, a sort of counsellor as well that I worked through a lot of my choices with and we talked a lot about just the way that your words and your energy can really change perspective. So for me, when I was going into chemo, I wouldn't, there's a lot of narrative around it being toxic and it being poison and it's pretty hard hitting. Like there's no, I'm not going to glitter a turd here. Sure, go get fun. Um, but I chose to see it as medicine. So I chose the language that I used to say, right, it's medicine, it's healing my body, uh, it's going around and it's you know, doing what it, and had lots of different visualisations of how I chose to see that in my body and that's all personal and individual. Mm-hmm. Everybody's entitled to do what they see fit to make it the easiest for them. Mm-hmm. But for me that was the way that I could um, 
see it in a more positive light because mm-hmm. it is the narrative is still very negative around treatment. Yes. Um, and it's particularly negative around, you know, as I say, chemo has talked about toxic and poison and, you know, killing your body, killing the cells. It's all very aggressive and negative. Mm-hmm. And I'd never even, I'd never even thought of that until she was speaking mm-hmm. about it. And I thought, you know what, you're right. If I go in there with this sort of fighter mentality, that's exhausting before you've even walked in the door you're already you know hyped up for a fight you know it's going to be aggressive it's going to be you know the energy that that takes gosh exactly and but actually going in saying right I'm just here for my medicine to make me better this is here to save me this is here to make me survive essentially was a very different um attitude that I'd never as I say it never even crossed my mind before but it was something that I've now ever since then been very mindful of and very mindful of the words I use and the words I choose. And that's why I say like simple things that you don't have to completely, you know, rewrite your yeah, history and everything when you go into a cancer ward. But if you just change some words or just change a little bit of perspective, anything that helps you feel better, like I don't, whatever yeah. that is, even if like, you know, you're the biggest gaming nerd when you were a kid, but now you're an adult, you know, you're so busy being adults and doing adulting things because adulting things are really busy. But <laughs> now you've got all this time on your hand and you're like, shit, what am I going to do with it? Go back to the things that you did as a kid and that you loved and just have fun. Like just do mm-hmm. the things that it doesn't, <laughs> it's also the beauty of cancer. No one really can tell you what they think. <laughs> so, you've got the card even if they think that it's absolutely ridiculous for a grown adult to be you know doing whatever you want to do they won't say anything and you don't <laughs> <laughs> there's no judgment <laughs> yeah and actually I wish life could be a bit more like that to be perfectly honest yeah it is very much an enlightening moment when you don't know how long you've got left and then you sort of think well what do I want to do who do I want to spend my time around because actually I don't have time to deal with all the little shit I don't have time mm-hmm. to deal with people who aren't bringing, you know, positivity or joy to my life. I don't mm-hmm. need to worry about that anymore. A lot more shoulder shrugging, a lot more I can't control it and I can't do anything about it. So mm-hmm. I don't need to waste what could be in the last few days or weeks of my life on that that stuff. So it's, Yeah. The insight I think that cancer for some people gives, it almost is that moment where it takes off those rose-coloured glasses and we see life, you know, for for a lot of people we can go through life thinking, as we say, we think the storybook of life will be we'll die when we're 90 in our sleep and it will be fine and peaceful but we'll still get to hit all those milestones. And then when something comes into life that is completely unexpected and earth-shattering and life-changing, we almost we get that perspective of, oh, God, life is fragile and it can be taken away at times at any moment and I think also COVID has helped a lot of people change their perspective and how they would like to live life and it's a it's a big wake-up call that I know a lot of people do receive and some people do really struggle with hearing or cancer is the best thing that's happened to me or this was so you know I'm glad this happened because yeah for some people it's not they 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 miss the life that they had but if as you said turn perspective and turn it around and go oh this yeah I can see things in a different light and a more positive light as well mm, and I I'm very much a I do tell people that cancer was the best thing to happen to me it was also the worst thing to happen to me like I I very much 
am a completely different person now, but I still, survivorship is really tough and I still miss so much about the person that I was. I'm, and the, all the unknowns, all the unknowns of what if, you know, what if, what if I could go through life without having to worry that it was going to come back every day? You know, all that sort of, yeah. the, the, the next stage of cancer after treatment, so the survivorship stage, is incredibly complex in itself, mm-hmm. um, which is something I'm incredi- I'm very passionate about talking about, mm-hmm. which is how we met. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because it is that sort of, especially for AYA, and again, I'm not going to generalise because I, I was 29 when I was diagnosed, mm-hmm. so that is my experience. But we're hit with this sort of life-changing perspective or epiphany or whatever you want to call it at a time in our lives where there is so much impacted by cancer it's you know fertility Mm -hmm. it's relationships it's finances it's jobs it's houses it's it's literally everything on our plate that we're just getting started on or in the middle of or you know at the very early stages yes um it's all those other impacts that cancer has which when you're sort of older, and I talk about my grandmother, my grandmother had bowel cancer in her, um, her 60s. So when she and I talk about it, and we, we do, when I was going through treatment, we talked about it very regularly. It was a very different experience because she'd, she'd had her children, she'd had her career, she'd paid off her mortgage. She was in a very different stage of her life. I'm not saying it was any easier for it. She still had to go through health treatment and all this kind of stuff. Yes. There were some similarities, of course. But from a lifestyle perspective and from a survivorship perspective afterwards, very, very different um, impacts. And I'm, I don't claim to know what, what they were for her specifically, but from an AYA perspective, it has that ripple effect that it impacts so much of your life for so many years mm-hmm. after that changes the course of what you thought you were going to be doing. Rightly or wrongly, you know, it could be better, it could be worse. You don't know, but absolutely massive change. Because how long were you in treatment for? Did you have to have a a transplant or anything like that, or were you just? No, so I was I was diagnostics for about a month, and then um, I did have fertility preservation treatment, and then chemo, and then I was in remission in January. So essentially, August to January through the whole the whole lot mm-hmm. oh my maths is shocking three or four months <laughs> uh, yeah no yeah I think it's about four to five yeah. months yeah so from yeah. from sort of original diagnostics through all of the treatment and to um when I was in remission or declared officially in remission was about that wow and you you I have to applaud you for really speaking up about what was important to you because I think so many people they don't do that at the beginning or they're too scared to do that or to confront a doctor to say, hey, this is important to me. This part of quality of life is something I really want to work on and focus on because so many people are rightly so. They're stunned in that moment that they've heard that news, but then some people almost lose their voice as soon as they've heard that that diagnosis. And I think how being able to voice and give yourself power through that is just so important as well yeah because it's terrifying you're you're confronted with these amazing doctors who know way more than I ever would about cancer you know and they are there to support you and then you are you know very much at, at their mercy in a lot of ways but then 
being able to have a little bit of space, write down questions. And also I, I, I remember saying to my dad and my husband, if I forget, because obviously it is a bit stunned mullet when, <laughs> when you're being told this information, if I forget, I want to ask about fertility. So getting that on some other people that are there as well so that it can be in their minds, having it written down. I used to have loads of questions written down before I went into every appointment. Um, some of them I forgot to ask even still, but, you know, it helped. <laughs> it helped. Um, the intention was there. The intention yeah. was there. <laughs> and just being confident and comfortable enough to ask, well, what are my options? Because when I transferred from my diagnosing um, oncologist to the public system so I went to the public system for my treatment um, just asking them okay well what are my fertility options what what can I do I know all about what I can't do <laughs> I know I know yes. all about what might happen but what's what is available to me and for my situation my cancer was too far advanced for IVF I didn't have time for IVF they do, in WA, there is one, I believe it's one, there's probably more now, but clinics that do IVM. Oh, okay. Essentially, very expensive, very fast IVF <laughs> um, yes, yes. because we didn't think there was going to be a thing. So it was nothing covered by Medicare or medical insurance. So that was all of our savings gone. Um, another financial impact to cancer, which people don't realise or talk about. And you're not working. No. So. And I was a contractor, so there was no sick leave. Uh, yeah, oh so a massive financial implication. But it was my option and my partner and I chose to take that option because they could do IBM in two weeks as opposed to six weeks for IVF. Um, so I spoke to my oncologist about that and said, look, this is what I want to do. This is my option. Um I also had Zolodex implants where, to try and protect yeah. my ovaries as well. Um, so I took the question of saying, okay, I I hear because naturally in the medical world as well, it is very much they have to prepare you for all the option, all the worst case scenarios. Absolutely. But quite often you have to really ask for the alternative scenarios. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with asking. Like no. Absolutely not. No, no, you did the same thing, didn't didn't you? Like the way, as you said, you changed the way you heard language or you spoke language. You really also, as you beautifully said before, I asked, what are my options? I know what I can't do, but what are they? And, yeah, what a way to change that perspective and also take control of that yeah. as well. Just giving you that choice, again, that, that sort of choice coming back into it, whereas – I get that this is a really serious situation where I may not like my options. Quite often I've had, you know, to choose between two really shit options. <laughs> but yes. at least you have the the information available to make those choices and ask for those questions and ask, like when I said to my oncologist, I said, well, can I have the time to do IVM, which is shorter than IVF? So it was it was sort of a, a negotiation between the two of us. And that's the thing with treatment. It doesn't have to be a one-way street. You don't have to just do what you're told. Um, you're a team. You're a team and you're a person. You're not just a number or a statistic or, a, you know, uh, just there to sort of literally just absorb. You can absolutely negotiate and talk with your team and ask the questions. And admittedly, sometimes I'd ask questions and I didn't like either option. <laughs> Yeah, well, but you asked. Yeah, <laughs> but you asked. And I think that's so right. It's so right that it's you have to find your voice within that. And, um, yeah, you are a team. And if you don't like the answer, well, you've asked and you're not going to stew on it. 
either and, and you're not going to go, oh, I should have asked that or they haven't presented this to me, but you've got to take control and participate in your own treatment and treatment plan as well. Absolutely, an active participant, not a passive recipient. I all, use that all the time for anything in life generally, but particularly within treatment. Like, And sometimes it's easier said than done when you're towards the end and you're knackered and you're, you're, you're very, very low on the everything all, but that's when all from yeah that's when those either the list that you've written down comes in or bring an advocate with you a friend or family member with you who you've spoken to beforehand when you had a bit more strength and that they can then advocate for you there's still still ways that you can do it without um with support again finding ways to support yourself and not feeling like there is only ever one option Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And how you said that survivorship was a really big part of your journey and it was really difficult. How was that? What what did that look like for you? I mean, treatment finished and people can be like, oh, God, you get those constant checks of, you know, reassurance of that everything's going okay. How did transitioning to s- survivorship go for you? Yeah, so I think, <laughs> and people laugh at me with this, uh, the living side of it was even more confusing than the dying side, <laughs> yeah. um, which it takes a bit of getting your head around. And it was incredibly confronting when I was in remission because it you are, how do I start this one? You're over the moon. Like you are literally cloud nine. You've just been given like a second lease on life. You just won the lottery essentially. And you are so excited and so grateful as are your friends and family and your friends and family go, Oh, thank God that's over. On we go. And just like for them, it's finished. Mm. It's, it's done. And, the race is over. Yeah. The race is over. And in them, I, I remember talking to my therapist about this and saying, but why do I feel like I've been hit by a truck and that I can't move on and I'm still bald. I don't look like myself. I might not be able to have kids. I'm fortunate enough they kept my job so I can go back to my job. So I went, I went back to FIFO bald. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and my relationship with my family has changed and my thoughts about my, you know, my what I thought my life was going to be have changed. My relationship with my husband has changed. Um, why do I feel like I'm not okay? And she, she laughed at me and she goes, probably because you're not. <laughs> is it not obvious (laughs) okay but I should be feeling on top of the world I am feeling on top of the world so why do I feel like I've been hit by a truck as well and she she sort of she used the analogy and I use it to try and explain these days as well is that people think that you've run a hundred meter sprint and you're on the podium and you're chugging champagne and you're lifting your gold cup medal and saying, yeah, I've, I've, I've lost a vibe. This is great. We, yeah, woo-hoo, we've won. We've won. We've won. We've won. And it is, but actually you've just run an ultra marathon race through the middle of Antarctica with no shoes on and no idea what you're doing and no training. And you're just literally limped over the finish line and you've now got to bring yourself back into life again slowly and recover from a hugely life impacting event physically mentally spiritually emotionally whichever you know it's impacted every aspect of your life I would have and financially financially and you've got to start piecing that together again but in a way that it will never be the same so you absolutely as like I say you are a blank slate literally from your bald head (laughs) 
through to you no, no eyebrows no eyelashes I was literally a yeah. Um, yeah but so is your life and trying to even know where to start trying to explain mm-hmm. that to people um feeling very confused about feeling that way about not just feeling on top of the world I uh now when I talk to sort of AYA cancer survivors or, or in groups and things like that the amount of times people say to me oh my god I thought it was just me oh my god I thought it was just it's me. not and I, I just want to scream it from the rooftops it's not just you it's really not just you oh my god like the in fact I don't think I've met any AYA cancer patient who hasn't had those feelings to be perfectly honest and the feeling that survivorship is really tough because of the expectations and the lack of understanding and awareness and support out there for that stage so you are literally left to fend for yourself feeling like you're alone feeling like um why why what do I do next why is this all happening what how do I overcome this and how do I get back get back to or start living my life again when everything has changed and you every time I meet an an AYA cancer survivor it's just that that connection that you say oh my god you get it you get it you understand you get it (laughs) I don't have to explain myself yeah yeah it's that unspoken rule of you get it and I'm not alone and there's Mm. there have been some wonderful connections that I have made um, since in the survivorship space with other AYA um, cancer patients, but we are few and far between. We are, you know, the the unicorn in the corner of the uh, chemo room where we are, you know, 50, 60 yeah. years younger than everybody else in the chemo room. Yes, we are absolutely by nature. Um, online has helped, I think. Online opens up a lot of doors, but yeah, there's definitely a lot to be said in the inclusivity space around AYA cancer patients because a lot of support services forget that for AYA patients, if it's a support service like a support group during the day, we're at work or we've got child. Yes. Um, All those sorts of little things that um, with survivorship sometimes counts us out because we're not available, we're in a different stage, whereas if we're retired, we are available during the day. Yes. Um, So... And some services you're almost penalised for your age because if you're not under eighteen, you can't access that. If you're not, if you're not over fifty five or sixty, you, you can't access those services. So there is a big period where people, as you say, are, are left to defend for them for themselves. And unlike hospital, when you're prescribed a treatment plan, you're not prescribed a survivorship plan. And you, everybody is so individual and you're holding to emotions at that time, as you beautifully explained, you can have such excitement and, you know, hope for the future again, but then also being so scared, so fearful and just shattered Mm. from what you've gone through. And it's, how do you manage that by yourself and going, oh gosh, I need to get back to work because financially I have no money and trying to function back in the normal world. Um, amongst everything else whilst feeling those is just incredibly tough and I agree more needs to be done yeah. to support people. It's totally like you say and it is I appreciate and understand that there are a lot of, lot of factors that go into support services and any kind of cancer service of course um, but yeah to ring up to be ringing up places to ask for support and being told you're too old for young person cancer, but you're too young for old person cancer. And I was like, okay, well, what cancer do I have and how can I get some support? 
<laughs> yes, because I know I had yeah. it. And yeah. well, definitely still a person with cancer. So how do I get some support? Yeah. And I yes. would shockingly be turned away from support services. And it's uh, heartbreaking for the person on the other end of the phone because they say, you know, I really want to help you and I really feel that you need support here, but my hands are tied. And I totally, as I say, I understand the ins and outs of the back, back end of a lot of um, funding and there's a lot of uh, requirements, but there needs to be more of a, I always liken it to the fact that especially with the AYA bracket it doesn't really matter what cancer you had or what treatment you had Mm -hmm. it's the the shared survivorship the shared the lifestyle impacts afterwards it's yes there are naturally differences between the cancer you had of course and there will be differences in treatment um so at that stage in the sort of cancer journey there is that that need for different support and different sort of um support groups and connections Mm -hmm more relative to your particular type of cancer Mm. however afterwards in the survivorship stage yes there are still some differences like some people are on ongoing treatment some people are on sort of maintenance um hormones or or medication or anything like that and some people have long-term side effects some people don't so there are differences in that space however the shared connection is through survivorship it's not through Mm. your type of cancer it's through i was a young independent woman who literally had the rug pulled out from under her feet what do I do now and I relate far more to a 29 year old woman with breast cancer than I do to a 79 year old man with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which yes generally for me they are old men (laughs) yeah and I think also two people's the, ment- the mental health and well-being of people, the support that's needed is somewhat the same, as yeah. you say, no matter what treatment you've had or what diagnosis you've had or your age, the age that you are is, is that that is such a focus that anybody should tap in at any time. And I do, I speak to people down and they go, oh, but I'm three years post. I should be over this. I should be back in life or five years or even one year or months past. You go, but there's but everybody's story is different and you can't compare as to where you, to where Vicky, where you are today and where somebody is um, who was diagnosed around the same time. There's just like the disease and the doctors and treatments would have said to you, you, you can't compare. Yeah. And I think survivorship in some way is almost the same as well. You can't compare or judge yourself against someone else because they're not you. Completely. Completely. And everyone's situation is different, you know, financially, emotionally, physically, Um it's there is some some shared similarities which is that camaraderie that kind of oh you get it you understand but really like and I I, I'll put my hand on my heart and say before I had cancer I thought that every single cancer was the same every chemo was the same and everyone lost lost weight and lost their hair thanks Hollywood it's not that (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) got a different version for you a little bit um but yeah that won't sell any movies so (laughs) (laughs) no it's too raw and too too honest (laughs) too real um but yeah I will be very honest and say that I was completely naive to all of that before Mm -hmm. and as you would expect people to be until they've sort of experienced some of it through it but yeah there's definitely space I think for some shared understanding around the more um, psychosocial impacts of cancer and mm. the bit that happens when treatment ends because there's there's a lot of a lot of sort of a common saying in a lot of groups that cancer doesn't end when treatment ends but that no, it when not. it's sort of defined in society as over you've mm. you know you've finished your treatment 
you're hopefully in remission, which is the best thing that anyone can ask for. And it is like winning the lottery. But then there's a whole stage of how do you live the rest of your life after Mm -hmm. um, with the fear of recurrence, with, you know, a changed body image, with financial impacts, relationship impacts, career impacts, just mental impacts of being told you might die. How do you start living again? Nobody helps you with that. (laughs) Nobody prepares you for that. No, and the things that you just named are all things that you actually physically can't see, Mm. whereas when you're diagnosed, you can physically see that you are unwell and that you've lost your hair, you've lost weight, you you might have lost muscle tone or not be able to do what you did, but all those things like financial, mental, the society can't see that Mm -hmm. and things that society can't see are the things that we're very good at dismissing because then we don't have to. And we don't have to deal with it. So how did you go, as you said, you went back to work. How did you deal with that transition and, and, and I guess I hate the word moving forward but or moving on, but how did, how did you get to kind of almost where you are today? Yeah, I, um, I started, well, I continued doing the things that I enjoyed that I had stopped doing because, as we said, adulting was getting in the way. <laughs> um, so I continued that I continued a lot of my um, counseling and my therapies to help support my health and wellness which are at honestly at 29 I hadn't really been focusing on I'll be completely honest hadn't even really crossed my mind (laughs) um so it was very much a continuation of um a lot of the things that had supported me through treatment I used to support myself through survivorship as well a lot of talking therapy. I'm a massive advocate for um, counselling, either formal or informal. It doesn't have to be, you know, down the psycho- psychologist route if that doesn't suit you. There's many other types of um, sort of talking therapies and counselling that can help. Um, and just continuing for me to be very transparent with my friends and family, even if it was uncomfortable for them and uncom- and they're confused they're just as confused as you are they're like well yes that's really <laughs> I'm not sure what to yeah. say and again it's that allowing that that's okay for the not sure what to say is as opposed to the the alternative which is the toxic toxic positivity band-aid of you'll be fine you'll be right you'll get over it <laughs> you can't say that to a cancer patient who's had something really bad delivered to them <laughs> yeah. because not always fine or okay. No, and it's learning to manage anxieties and fears around reoccurrence. It's learning to trust your body again because there's a lot of mistrust around, for me personally, how the hell did I get to stage four body without you telling me? Like why? Yes, building trust again. Building that trust again, which is a very challenging part and it's creating an identity again. I, As I said, I mentioned before, a blank slate. I had... Re- had an identity based on who I used to look like and now I had to build an identity of who I wanted to be and where I wanted to be um and it takes time (laughs) I'm never thinking yeah my hair took so long to grow and my eyelashes it was my eyelashes I missed the most because sticking on false eyelashes at 3am is hard work (laughs) (laughs) and I can and I can um say to the listeners you've got some beautiful head of hair and eyelashes and gorgeous eyebrows now (laughs) yeah (laughs) thanks postpartum thanks pregnancy but um I would hearing you would I be right in saying you actually have to as we said be an active participant in your survivorship that it doesn't get delivered to you and it doesn't 
it doesn't just happen that you have to take control and um do the work is you've already I know everyone you've done just such a hard marathon before that but the marathon is still here yeah. to get you and I think it's more of a case of you're you have it's almost like the cool down after the marathon so you're walking you're not running for your life anymore you're not you know literally trying to limp over that finish line so that it's finished it's done <laughs> your cool down may last 12 months it may last 12 years you just don't know but you're it may last forever, yeah. to be honest. There is no, there's no real, you know, finish line, and, as it were, yes. goalpost in sight, and you you get to choose the pace and you get to choose. Now, sometimes it's slower than you want. <laughs> sometimes it, just like, it feels like a lifetime to try and recover, and then that gives you sometimes the slowness and the space to really work out, well, what do I want to do? Like, I know yeah. that I have a tendency to take on too much, but physically I couldn't. So it was a case of, yeah. oh, shit, I'm going to have to really focus on, well, what do I want to do and what can I do? What am I able to do? And it was it was a real slowdown for me on my life, yes. which is, you know, in some ways it's beautiful. In other ways it's really frustrating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, it's being able to take both sides of that coin and then just as I say sometimes look at the language look at where you're at how do you want to come out of this who can support you out of this yeah if it's not if you're hitting loads of roadblocks while trying to get sort of more um traditional support like through the through charities or through the hospital or through the medical avenue what other options are available to me mm. it might be more of a social support it might be joining a club mm. or joining a sports group if you're feeling well enough or even online. Yeah. I mean, online can be a little bit of a lion's den sometimes in the cancer world. Yep. So take take what you need and if it's not giving you what you need, unfriend, get out of those groups, remove yourself from that environment. Protect yourself. Yeah, totally. Like online can be brilliant and online can be intense in the cancer world as well because there's mm-hmm. a lot of confronting stuff that goes on and comes up in those groups mm-hmm. too. So just protect yourself. And if it's not adding to your survivorship support and it's it's making you feel worse, just come out. Move yeah. on. Yep. Come out and look for something yeah. different. And whether that's, like I say, trying something new or something old, something, yeah. you know, that you used to love or that you said, oh, Revisit. yeah, I've wanted to do this for like forever and do it. Find some way. That you can Why it. not? Yeah. And give it a go. If you love it, great. If you don't, hey, you did it. And you try something. Yeah, exactly. A lot of trial and error. There's definitely, there's no, as we said, there's no magic pill for survivorship because it's not all the same. Everyone is different. So it's a, it is a lot of trial and error, but it's being able to have a bit more fun with that error, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And willing to do it too yeah. as well. Willing to give it it's a go. Open yeah. mind is an option and you can try it. And mm. if that option's not for you, you don't have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because I know that we're nearing almost now and I'm and I'm nosy and I know that you have a beautiful baby girl and um, one on the way, a, a baby on the way, What? how did that story unfold? How did you get to where you sit now? Because I know so many people, male or female, will be interested to know uh, what happened for you there. Yeah, I, um, that is it's definitely a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so as I've mentioned before the fertility aspect of it was the most confronting side effect of my cancer treatment mm-hmm. um 
I actually got tested. So I did IVM or we did IVM, sorry. It wasn't particularly successful. Uh, we managed to get one. And then the Zolidex imp- implants to try and protect my ovaries. When I went for the testing um, after 12 months, because they told me I had to wait, I had what they deem as negligible egg reserves. So essentially mm-hmm. there was nothing left there, which was, again, like being hit by a bus <laughs> again. Yeah, being diagnosed all over yeah, again. Yeah, because I'd done everything. I'd made the choices I could make. I'd done everything within my power to try and protect my ovaries. We still had one in the freezer and one's better than none. But it was very much a heartbreaking moment to think, wow, there's nothing there at 29. I you know, I was 30 by that point, but yeah. Yeah. So, again, that took a lot of healing and a lot of recovery. And then um, the doctor said to me, that if you want to try you can try IVF but we're not particularly hopeful but that is again I asked well what are my options and she said that that is your only option your only option is to try and retrieve or try and investigate if there is even anything to retrieve and we postponed our honeymoon from the wedding for a few years (laughs) yeah we went away and I spoke to my husband and we just decided that I didn't want to be doing medication while we're on our honeymoon I just, we thought that we were just going to give it a few more months, go on honeymoon, then when we came back, we would go into IVF if that was what was required. But we'd just try naturally and just see what happened. Um, And sometimes the tests are wrong. So naturally uh, was one egg hiding there (laughs) under negligible result. There was definitely. (laughs) <laughs> one little little lady in there still hiding away so oh wow I was definitely more shocked than anyone else oh my god and I'm sure the doctors were yeah, too every maternity appointment <laughs> I want to, I went to they went so how did you where, where did you have IVF and all this kind of stuff and I went no no <laughs> and then they looked at I did it myself goes, so these are your results yeah yeah <laughs> I know I know that that is not the case for a lot of people and I am very mindful and sensitive of this is my experience and my story for myself however I do share often (laughs) because when I was looking for people like me when I was diagnosed I people who had had children after my treatment or people who were my age who had managed to fall pregnant either naturally or with assistance either way I couldn't find anyone nobody could give me anyone and so now I speak about it to say that there are people out there even with you know negligible results even with medical results that say you can't this isn't possible yeah Mm -hmm. and yes as there will be many variations on a theme everyone is different but for me that was my choice to Um, keep trying anyway do different things again different supportive therapies and things like that through um, and up to my honeymoon and then yeah same with this second pregnancy he was a little harder to come by (laughs) we did go back to the facility clinic to ask about the implantation of of the embryo that we had and then and then he was here without. So another negligible egg that was hiding away. <laughs> wow. So, wow. The results were wrong again. 
Oh, what two uh, blessed miracles. Two very wow. much miracle babies. And as I say, I do talk about it to give people hope, the hope that there are alternatives to um, test results or there are alternatives, there are options, there, are, there is hope, there are people like me yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, and again, if it's not that case for you, then you have choices and options and just keep asking the questions, okay, well, if this is what this looks like, what can I do with this or what are my options? And that's, um, I think, where it came down to with these these babies is that I just chose my option. My option was to wait for a little bit before we did IVF, so I waited. Um, I can't, apart from, a, apart from a honeymoon where I didn't want to be taking infections <laughs> with me and trying to find fridges in the middle yeah. of the Central American jungle and all that kind of stuff yeah I um I can't really tell you that would have been a bit hard I can't really sort of find another reason but that was my that was my reason at the time that was my choice our choice sorry and um yeah so for me it was definitely a a roller coaster to get to this stage and I'm I'm now Mm. five years post-diagnosis maybe a bit longer than that five and a half um and I still am working through survivorship even though my worst fears were not confirmed, I have had, you know, one beautiful girl and I'm pregnant with another. Um, yeah. It's still something that I work on. Survivorship is still something that I work mm-hmm. on constantly. And it's yeah. something that it's not a negative thing that it's in my life every day. It's not necessarily a positive thing that it's in my life every day, but it is my life mm-hmm. now. I have no choice. Mm-hmm. That I have no choice over, ironically. Choice over. <laughs> It's yes, exactly. And that's the one thing I don't have a choice about. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I yes, will always yes, yes. be somebody who, again, language choices that I survived my cancer. Like I, that will always be part of my life, and it will it will always be an impact on my decisions of my choices. But it's how I choose to to look at that and go from there. Yeah. Oh, you have left us with some pearls and some wor- wisdom that I just, oh, I can't thank you enough. And I think what I've really learned from you is the power of a voice and the power of your, you know, being able to see your choices mm-hmm. through the darkness. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, they can be really hard to see when it's pitch dark, oh, yeah. but I think to know and feel that they are, they are there, but you, unfortunately again when you're at your worst you have to put yourself into it and you have to you have to search for yeah, them as definitely. well and it's not easy and it is disheartening to be turned away it's not easy to ask for help a lot of for a lot of people oh no and it's Absolutely. not easy to like you say when we were talking about earlier a lot of the things that can't be seen so when your hair's growing yes. back or you know all those sorts of things that all those sort of mental or the financial or the social or this emotional side of things that you can't necessarily just see in a person. Mm. It's definitely that's that's the side that we th- I think we need to remember if we are going mm. through it, or if this is family and friends listening. Um, yes, that's the side of things that it will be a longer journey than just when the bell rings and mm. the remission comes, and just to be there, open minded, and even saying I don't know, I don't understand, how can I yeah. help? Um, yeah. But just to keep reaching out for help and keep asking for support because mm. it will be there. It might just not be at the first door that you knock on. Yeah, keep knocking. Yeah, hey? definitely. Yeah, there are things out there. Yeah. I promise, and you're not alone. It's so, yeah, so common, and yeah. yeah. 
I don't think there's anything left to say. I think you've just wrapped it up so beautifully and perfectly. So I think that we'll um, we'll just leave it there, shall we? And uh, from the Leukemia Foundation and the people that are listening, I we cannot thank you enough and we wish you all the very best for the next adventure that you're about to bar- embark on. And um, good luck to those sleepless nights and remember that this too shall pass when the bubba is screaming. So <laughs> thank you. this too shall pass. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that. Thanks. That's the, no, thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share, or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff, and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.